everyone, and welcome to the show. This is Police Off the Cuff, special edition, real crime episodes. This is episode number three. And you can catch this show on www.patreon.com slash policeoffthecuff. And then after about two weeks, we put it out on our anchor that has 10 listening sites for our podcast. Today, I have a very, very special guest. And his name is, what is your name again? <laughs> <laughs> you forgot me already. No, his name is Phil Grimaldi. And he's a, a dear friend of mine. And he, he had a 21-year career with the NYPD. Pretty eclectic career. He started out in the transit police. Then he started out with some investigative units. He did a stint in RIP, I believe, in the 6-8 precinct. He wound up in the 6-0 detective squad in Coney Island, and he finished up his career in the intelligence division during 9-11, where he actually, for two years, worked over 1,000 hours overtime. If you think that's blood money, you're right. That's not an easy thing to do, 1,000 uh, hours of overtime. It's nice money, but you don't see your family for two years. So without further ado, I'm, going to I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm going to introduce our guest, retired NYPD second grade detective, Phil Grimaldi. Phil, great to have you on the show. Hey, Bill, thanks for having me. Well, you know something? I know that you had a pretty uh, eclectic and a, a, a varied police career, but today you're going to tell us a story about a homicide that occurred in 1992 in, within the confines of the 6-0 precinct. You want, to, you want to tell us that story? Sure, absolutely. Um, we were called over er, early in the morning of uh, January the 24th, 1992. Uh, someone had called 911. Uh, police responded. Uh, there was an open door, 10th uh, floor apartment of 2007 Surf Avenue, which at the time was a, uh, it's a housing project, uh, crack riddled building, the area, uh, very uh, high crime area, shootings, drugs, prostitution, you name it, they had it at 2007 Surf. It was an inf infamous building. And even till now, it's probably uh, not that great, but we get called to the 10th floor apartment. Uh, a neighbor uh, calls and says there's an open door and uh, an elderly woman lived there. And uh, so once inside the police find the, the woman, uh, apparently DOA face up, naturally they notify uh, all the various units, crime scene and the squad. And because it was a housing location in 92, there were separate police departments then. It was the housing police, the transit police, and the NYPD, which are now merged in since, I guess, around 94 or 95. But at the time, they had their own major case unit, and they had their own squad. So we started the investigation with myself, uh, detectives from the 6-0 squad, as well as Brooklyn South Homicide Squad and the housing police major case squad. You think that maybe there were too many people on this investigation initially? No, you know, you know what, Bill? No, I got to say, I got to give, uh, I got, I got to give a lot of credit to the housing because anytime we caught a case in housing, it was like we had an army. So we had plenty of, uh, plenty of people to do the, uh, the you know, th those are big buildings, a lot of canvas done. So they sent us uh, quite a bit of help. And the way we worked it with them was, um, the first case we would take the collar, the next homicide in housing, they would take the collar. So we kind of worked it and split it up. And, and we had a great relationship with them. And a matter of fact, one of, the, uh, one of the people that was on the scene was a sergeant by the name of Buddy Manane, who was very instrumental in solving the case. We'll, we'll get to that later. But uh, he was like a, 
uh, a walking encyclopedia uh, with regard to the housing projects. He knew the, the name, the mother, the apartment, uh, who lived in it. He knew the nicknames. He knew everything about everybody in housing. But he was truly just one of those amazing guys, you know. You know, that's that's those kind of resources. You know, you can't. They're so invaluable. You know, it's like you're right. It's like a human computer having knowledge of what has occurred in this building. Everyone that lives in this building. That's a goal to an investigator. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, uh, manpower and resources. You know, sometimes there'd be there'd be two homicides in one tour, and, and a shooting, or a bunch of other stuff going on. So resources. You know, when it wasn't a housing case, they would get a little scarce. But when we had housing, we knew we always had plenty of help. And uh, so, getting back to it, we uh, we walk into the crime scene, and the apartment was. If you came out of the elevator on the tenth floor, you made a left, and and the the, the hallway kind of went around to the left and she was the uh, second apartment in that uh, string of apartments on the floor. And right across from her apartment was the staircase door. So uh, inside the apartment, she's face up, uh, large gash in her throat and probably about a dozen hesitate, what we call hesitation wounds where the person who had her down uh, was like stabbing her, you know, jabbing her in the throat maybe trying to get, uh, you know, information out of her, where's the money, you know, things like that. So she had a bunch of, uh, to the left of the, of the big hole was a bunch of little holes, which we call hesitation marks. And it, it was clear that she had struggled and put up a fight. And, well, to, uh, to, a, to a homicide investigator, that's very indicative of uh, the person doing this was trying to get information out of her. Absolutely. And uh, it's horrible because it's almost like they, whoever did this tortured her. Yeah, yeah. They, they were, uh, uh, when I get further on into the story, I'll explain what, why we believe that that happened. So inside the apartment, um, right where she was laying was kind of inside the front door. The kitchen was right next to her. The living room was to the right and to the left was the bedroom. But there was groceries strewn on the floor. A plastic bag looked like it had been ripped open. And we wound up getting a receipt from that uh, supermarket that she had gone to that we later followed up on and, and we kind of tracked her movements before before the murder. So the person- No, Phil, let me just stop you for a sure. second. You know, it's funny, it's a, being a former RIP supervisor, robbery investigation supervisor, that's always one of the premier questions is, where was the victim prior to getting robbed? You know, Absolutely. and it's an important question because yeah. whether, did someone follow them? Did someone follow them into the building? Did someone follow them from an ATM? someone followed them from a bar. So just even in a homicide, of course, it's just as important in a robbery uh, to answer that question. Yeah, that was one of the angles that we were looking at. Was she possibly followed from when she went shopping? Did she stop at the bank or did somebody follow her from the supermarket? So all of those things were in play at the very beginning, you know, and, and you could tell that there was a struggle. Uh, she had we really didn't roll her right away because we waited for the ME and everything, but she had some blood by the back of her head. So it was definitely signs of a struggle, you know, and the person who called 911 who lived next door said um, that she looked out for this woman because she was elderly. I mean, uh, the building was uh, mostly uh, senior citizens when it first went up years ago. And then as the time went on, it changed and a lot of welfare recipients and we went, later found out that she actually had been already moved to another location where there were more senior citizens like her and the Sheepshead Nostrand projects 
probably a few miles away, and she had gotten the keys to the other other apartment, but she just hadn't made the transition yet, you know. So this person that called nine one one was probably not such an upstanding person. She admitted to being uh, a recreational crack user. Uh, we found out that she is had. There, is there such a thing as recreational crack? Well, well, she had, the reason I say that is because she had a couple of kids and she would take them to the bus in the morning. And, uh, you know, she, she had a couple of calls for prostitution. Listen, you can't judge your witnesses, you know, and you can't pick them. You got to go. You can't pick your about. witnesses. That's yeah. So she, she had indicated to her, us that earlier the day before she saw her go out with a shopping cart to go shopping. And that when she returned, there was a few people in front of the building, a couple of guys that had been smoking crack and stuff like that. So she threw a couple of names at us, like to look at these guys. And she even told us that there was a rumor in the building for a while since her husband had passed a few months before that she received a $100,000 life insurance policy and that she kept the money inside the apartment in the washing machine. So now we started to put it together as a motive that this money was possibly in the apartment. That's why we, we uh, felt the hesitation marks uh, probably came into play that whoever it was that robbed it was, you know, give me the money, where's the money, where's the money? And um, so we started out our investigation with that as the motive and the theory. So um, I think it was later that day, we actually, she gave us a name of two, two individuals. Uh, one of them was a guy by the name of Robert Knight. She said he was out in front of the building smoking crack. And when they were talking and they saw her, somebody says, oh yeah, that's the old lady with the hundred grand in her washing machine. He made a remark like, yeah, well, we'll see about that. So she kind of put us on to him. We got a hold of him that day. We brought him into the precinct. We, uh, we gave him a, a pretty good interview. And his alibi was, is, listen, man, I just uh, got out of jail a few months, a few weeks ago. And I was staying over at my girlfriend's house in the pink houses in, I guess it was like East New York across town. And he says, I came to Coney Island on the, on that, you know, this morning, he goes, I, you know, I saw all the cops, you know, I wasn't around. And based on the grocery receipt that we found, we knew that she had been coming from shopping and it looked like as she came back, of course the grocery bag was tore open and the receipt was there that it probably happened about that time, you know, based on the information from the medical examiner and stuff. So we knew it had happened the day before. So we sent uh, detectives over to talk to his girlfriend. So when they go over to the girlfriend's house, she wasn't home, but the mother says, Oh yeah, this guy's name was freedom. His nickname was freedom. And that's a weird nickname for a guy that's always in prison. Yeah, really. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But uh, she she says, "Oh yeah," she says, uh, "My daughter and Freedom broke up, uh, and he went out of here. Yeah, he went out of here. Uh, yeah, we we said, you know, it was like the next day that we went to interview her, and she says, yeah, he went out of here yesterday. So his alibi was kind of okay. And then we interviewed the other guy. The other guy was a crackhead. He didn't have any uh, anything." you know, that we thought was real suspicious about him. And we didn't, we didn't put him in the categories being a possible part. So now we moved on with the investigation and we tracked down from the receipt, we tracked down the supermarket and the bus, we actually found the bus driver that took her from the supermarket back to Coney Island. He actually had a helper back on the bus. So while we were doing our investigation, um, we went and spoke to the management office and the management office, I'm sure you're aware of with the management yeah. office in housing, it's where the, uh, like there's a group of buildings and there's one management office and they control the leases and things like that. So when we went there, we spoke to a woman and she said that, you know, she knew who the woman was and she was helping trying to relocate her. 
And we asked her about, uh, you know, the husband dying. And, and she says, yeah, she says, uh, I knew that she got $100,000 from uh, the insurance policy. So when she said that to us, it was kind of a lot of information for a, an elderly woman, 79 years old to, to give, you know, to uh, the rental agent. So we started to look at maybe she knew someone and she had a son with a, a pretty extensive uh, felony record with a lot of robberies and stuff. So we track him down. We interview him and he, he narrows down that on that day, on the 23rd, not the 24th, that he was in court that day. And we find out, yeah, he was in court. He was answering like a, a, a misdemeanor case over in Brooklyn criminal court, you know? You know, it's, Phil, it's funny how that information that, that her husband died and that she had inherited $100,000 was like common knowledge all over the housing project, you know, which is uh, makes you a target, you know, for a robbery. Oh, absolutely. And, and the real strange thing about it is this. She would go into the building and she would wait until there was no one in the lobby to go in the elevator. They said she would stay in the lobby 15 minutes until she can go into the elevator alone. She was very cautious. And this one girl that lived next door said that she looked out for her. Maybe there was a couple of other people. So she was real careful. What we had surmised at the time was, is that whoever it was, because of what we were told, that she was super cautious, you know, even before she put the key in the door, she would look around and make sure nobody was in the hallway, or she would just stand there with her hands folded on a shopping cart and wait. So we had surmised that whoever it was, was in that doorway to the staircase across from her apartment, and that they, uh, you know, they probably, as soon as she put the key in the door when nobody was around, they, they you know, they pushed in on Oh, her. you know, when you live in a housing project, you learn to do things like that for self-preservation. You know? Absolutely. I'm sure she was robbed in the 30-something years she lived in that project. I'm sure she was robbed before. This wasn't a Absolutely. She, she was very cautious and was probably for good reason, you know? Yeah, sure. going, uh, moving back a little bit, uh, when, when uh, the autopsy was conducted the next day, myself, and it was a detective from the housing police, uh, I can't think of his first name, but his name was Smith. He was actually waiting to be promoted to sergeant and... Uh, there was an, another detective that was assigned to the case later on, but we go to the autopsy and here's this woman. She was about four foot nine or 10. She was a small little petite thing. She had a broken arm from probably a previous fall. And we found out that she had advanced breast cancer. So she couldn't have put up much of a struggle. No, you know? of course not. And, no. and when they did the autopsy, they said that the cause of death was the stab wound, actually, the big stab wound didn't hit anything. It was just a big open wound, the hesitation marks, but she was strangled and she had like maybe a dozen contusions on the back of her head from her head being banged on the floor. So it was a horrific, horrific way to die. And, you know, it just, it made us just a little bit more aggressive to try and find out who did it because this poor woman was, was so brutally murdered, you know? Yeah, you definitely wanted to get closure for this poor lady. Absolutely. Died so horribly, you know? So anyhow, as, uh, as we found out uh, about the woman from the management office's son, that he had a good alibi, the other guy had an alibi, and things started to slow down. So over time, what I did was I contacted the Crime Stoppers unit, and I asked them to profile the case on TV, which they did. We had a reporter, John Miller, not the John Miller, who's the deputy commissioner. It was a different John Miller from Channel 11, I believe it was. So they profiled the thing. We put it on the news. It aired several times, actually not even one call, you know? So as time went on, things got cold. And uh, going back to Sergeant Buddy Manane, who uh, passed away a few years ago, 
Um, he took a, a look at the case. And like I had said, the detective who was assigned from the housing bureau had gotten promoted to sergeant. So he assigned another detective, Nixon Alley, to the case. They were going over it and they said, you know what, let's go do a re-canvas. So they knock on, the first door they knock on, they go up to the 10th floor and they knock on the neighbor's door who gave us some good information and, and who put us in the direction of, uh, of this guy, Knight. So she opens the door and she tells them, I've been waiting for you guys. My, I'm going crazy. I saw it on the news. I can't take it. I've been waiting for you guys. Come in, come in, come in. So when they go in, she tells them, listen, I didn't tell the whole truth on the day that the, the murder happened. Uh, the day that uh, uh, the murder happened, I heard a commotion next door. I looked through my peephole and I opened the door and I saw Robert Knight coming out of the apartment. He had gloves on, a leather jacket. I looked at him and I said, what did you do? What did you do to that old lady? And he goes, nothing, nothing. I just robbed her. She goes, did you hurt him? Did you, did, you, did you hurt her? Did you hurt her? And uh, he says, no. And he goes, and if you say anything, I'll kill you. And then he leaves. So she was very frightened to uh, come forward and say anything at the time. But I guess over time now, it, this was June. The murder happened in January. And I guess from seeing it on TV and her conscience, so she blurts the whole thing out. They take her over to the Brooklyn DA's office where uh, investigators from the DA's office interview her and they give her a polygraph. A good friend of mine, Joe Ponzi, was in charge of the polygraph unit at the time and they find her to be credible. So they contact the squad. Uh, I go over and we get all the information. We start to hunt down this Robert Knight. Our information tells us that uh, he had gone to Atlantic City, New Jersey to live with a cousin right after the murder. And uh, Phil, he had, a, he, uh, Robert Knight had a history of, of robbery, right? He did. Uh, Correct. He, he actually had just gotten out of jail. He had did about, I think it was either five or seven years. He was involved in a, a string of stickups in diners in Brooklyn. He was in a crew of guys that they would hold up diners 11, 12, one o'clock in the morning. And, uh, they would actually hold up the diner and hold up the patrons. And a couple of the incidents, they made patrons engage in sexual acts. So it was a really very uh, uh, high profile uh, newsworthy case at the time. You know, they had a case like that years ago out on Long Island and the perps were from Brooklyn. Yeah, th th that was the case. That yeah. was the case. They, they that, would that, yeah, that was, that was such a savage case, you know. Uh, I, re I remember that. And they, yeah. and they were in the diner for quite a long time. They robbed each other. They actually made everyone take all their clothes off. Exactly. They made people take their clothes off. And as they, they did to several of them, one or two of them, they made people who engage in sexual acts. And uh, he was part of the crew. He was arrested. And he had, he had gotten out of jail early January uh, before the murder. So naturally, to look at him was, uh, was looking better and better based, based on what she told us. So... Um, we get the information that he's out in Atlantic City. So we contact the Atlantic City Police Department and we tell them of our plan to go over and, uh, you know, try and locate this individual. And as it turned out, in, I think it was the January or February, it was still cold out, he was uh, picked up on a suspicion of burglary. He was found in some backyards. A burglary had, a, had occurred, but uh, before the perp got into the location, um, the police were called and they found him in the backyard. So they, they, gave, they had given him a summons for trespass. And um, they, uh, they let him go on the summons, but he never responded to it. So they had enough to hold him on the warrant on the summons, you know. So we get together with them. We go out to the Atlantic City uh, Police Department the next day. And uh, we meet with them very early in the morning. 
and uh, they assigned two detectives with us. And no, I saw, um, look, can I just stop you for a second? Sure. You guys had a, an arrest warrant for him, right? No, not yet. Oh, not you yet. didn't? Okay. We didn't have an arrest warrant for him. We were going to go and, and have him held on the warrant based on the, uh, on the uh, summons that he was given for this burglary uh, in Atlantic City. Right, because I, I was going to ask you why you did that, because since in New York State, once you have a warrant, there's an absolute right to counsel. Right, exactly. So we wanted to be able to speak to him, obviously. Yes, and yeah. we, that's why we took the Atlantic City Police with us, that we were going to hold him on that, and we would speak to him about the murder, you know? So um, so we get out to uh, Atlantic City PD. They assigned two guys. Everybody's dressed down, and they assigned a couple of guys with us, and they knew the, lo they knew the location. There had been some 911 calls there and stuff. So we go over to the house. Myself and another detective go around to the back, and Buddy Manane and... Nixon Alley going to the front of the location with the one of the Atlantic City detectives and I hear some kind of a stir going on so I'm by the back door and out comes this little kid maybe about six or seven years old and he's got his sneakers in his one hand and he's got a bag of potato chips in the other hand and he sits down on the back porch and he looks at me and I, I go like this to him Shh. he goes okay Shh. so he he starts eating the potato chips and I have a picture of freedom so I take out the picture I go do you know who this is? And he goes like this. Yep. I says, okay, who is it? He goes, that's free. I saw now I knew he was on, you know, it was the right guy. I said, is free in the house? Like that. He goes, I go, where is he? He goes, he just left. I go, do you know where he went? So he goes, I said, where? He goes, he went to get a haircut. Now it's like 930 in the morning. I says, okay, I take a couple of bucks out of my pocket. I give it to him and I go like this. Shh. And I could hear from the front of the house, the, the cousins saying, because it was his cousin's house. No, that, that motherfucker hasn't been here. He owes us money. You know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. like trying to throw us off the trail. Right. So I, I says, guys, come outside for a second. So I get everybody together and I says, uh, listen, there was a kid in the back. I showed him the picture. He said, free, just left the house a few minutes ago. He went to get a haircut. So one of the detectives from the Atlantic City Police Department says, I know where the barbershops are. I know where he went. 